right, so today we are continuing our Thinking Biblically series. And so far we've covered the topics of work, art, technology, time. Today we come to speech, and this evening we're going to be talking about recreation, and then we just have one more, friendship. So this is part one of speech, because it was just a little too much to fit just into one message. And speech is a really important thing for all of us to think about, especially today, because there are so many different ways that we are able to say things. And so it is important that we think about what it is that we're supposed to be saying. We have so many different platforms to say things. Not only can we have face-to-face conversations, and can we have print media, and we can write letters, but now we have email, we have instant messaging, we can put things on Facebook, we can caption something on Instagram, we can tweet, we can Snapchat. There's so many different ways that we are saying things. And so the topic of speech is something that's very important, and the Christian needs to realize what he should be saying on all of those platforms. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And the book of James has an awful lot to say about that. And so we're going to be, through this week and next week, going through the entire book of James and realizing all of the things that it has to say. And that may seem a little overwhelming, but I, I started with chapter 3, which is the tongue chapter, you know. And as I looked at the context beforehand and the context afterward, I, I just kept expanding and expanding, and eventually the whole book was there. And it, it does have a lot to say throughout the whole thing about the topic of speech. So today, we're just going to cover the first two chapters, chapter 1 and 2, which on your bulletin is the first page of the handout, and then next week we'll get to the back page, chapters 3, 4, and 5. And James, the book of James, is a really interesting book because it's the very first book that was written in the New Testament. And so we're seeing the very early, early stages of the church and what was important to the church in those early years. And at that time, we need to understand that the majority of the church was made up of converted Jews, and there weren't as many Gentiles or Greeks as when Paul was writing. And so we're going to see that it's addressed, first of all, the first verse says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion greetings. So he's addressing this mainly to his Jewish brothers. It's also interesting that James is the brother of Jesus. And for the majority of his life, he was not a believer. And he did not think that his brother was the son of God. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that James was converted. And then he became really like a senior pastor to the church in Jerusalem. And so it's very humbling that he says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know he's definitely had a heart change because that's how he's addressing his brother And so James is also heavily influenced by the Old Testament, of course, because there wasn't any part of the New Testament until he wrote this. So he's heavily influenced by that, and especially by wisdom literature. And so we see that he lays out his book in a similar way to Solomon's books, that it's wisdom literature, and so it doesn't necessarily have a logic flow that we can follow like Paul does. It's not quite like that, but instead it's pithy statements and it's a little more seemingly jumbled. And so in order to make sense of that, 
we're going to look at it as if it's uh, an aviary. Now, an aviary is a place where they have a bunch of birds flying around. And I remember when I went to the Pittsburgh Zoo when middle school, we went to an aviary, and it's a little overwhelming. You walk in, and there's just all of these birds flying around, and you get to look at them and see, and you have to be careful where you stand, and you get to look and see well, where they are. Um, and that's so how we're going to approach this book in um, the first chapter, he lays out the things that he's going to be talking about then in the later chapters. And so let's start off in this first chapter just looking through the things that James is laying out, and then he's going to develop in the next four chapters. We're going to have five birds that we're looking at in this uh, first chapter, five birds that then we're going to pick out and see and spot in the aviary as we go through the next four The first bird that we see is the penguin. And the penguin reminds us that we should have joyful speech in trial. Each of these birds reminds us of something that we need to do with our speech. And the reason I've chosen the penguin for joyful speech in trial is because penguins live in one of the harshest climates on planet Earth. It is uh, barren tundra. It is cold. I mean, we don't send very many people there, even the scientists that we do send there. And yet, every time I've seen a picture or a video or a movie about a penguin, they always seem to be very joyful creatures, very happy creatures, and they're living in this midst of a harsh climate. And so, in that way, the penguin reminds us to be joyful even when we face trials. Now, as I've said, because this is very similar to wisdom literature, The penguin is actually seen in two places, and some of the birds are like this. It's not just in one spot in this beginning section, but it's spread out. And so it's found from verses 2 to 4 and then 12 to 15. So I'm just going to read those sections together so we can see uh, how James is thinking about this particular aspect of speech. Starting in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's being tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so we see here he's saying, count it all joy when you meet these trials of various kinds. So we know that this book in particular is written to people who are being spread out, as we read from the very first verse, the 12 tribes and the dispersion, Jews who have been spread out from Jerusalem because of religious persecution. And so that's one trial that we might face is spiritual persecution. And Philippians has a a very helpful thoughts on this. Now, Paul is writing Philippians while he is in prison, and it's important that we keep that in mind. So he is very, in a real way, facing this uh, trial and this persecution because of the gospel. He says in verse 12 of Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me 
has really happened to advance the gospel. So me being in prison has been really beneficial in the advancement of the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he's saying, not only has this helped me to advance the gospel here in Rome amongst the the guards that are all around me, but other people have seen my example, and they've been able to be emboldened to speak about the gospel themselves. And so in these two ways, he can take joy even in persecution. But he says even more about it when we get to verse 27. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. It is a clear sign to them of, your, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So he's saying it's a blessing, not only that we can believe in Christ, but we can suffer with him, suffer for his sake. So this is one trial in which we can count it all joy. But it says of various kinds, and that language is used throughout the New Testament when it talks about trials. And so we know that it's not just that. Often it's primarily that, but we have... Other examples of verses talking about this trial being the wasting away, the hardships of life. And we're reminded that, that those are a result of the curse that we read about in Genesis 3, that we are wasting away. And so how are we supposed to take joy in the fact that we are wasting away? Well, we were reminded in Genesis 3 that God has uh, annexed Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. He sent them out. And it says for the, the reason that he's done this is so that they don't keep eating of the tree of the knowledge or the tree of life and live forever in their sins. So it's actually a blessing from God that we are able to waste away, that we're able to get gray hair and go bald and that we get arthritis and we waste away and we die because we, we don't want to keep living in this world filled with sin. It's a grace of God that we can end this world filled with sin and go and be in his presence for those who have believed in him. So that's one way when we face cancer and sickness and disease, we can count it joy because it's a sign that God loves us enough not to leave us here in this fallen world. But it's also... Uh, sometimes, sometimes this trial is a direct punishment for sin. Now we know that because we've all sinned, it is only by the grace of God that we aren't sick and that we don't have cancer and that we aren't dead right now. It's because of God's forbearance because those are the things that he is pouring out his wrath in on this earth for our sin. But sometimes it's actually a direct result of sin that we have certain sicknesses And James is going to deal with that in chapter 5, almost at the very end. So we're going to get to that next week and see uh, how we should deal with that, a particular sin that's a result, uh, or a particular trial that's a direct result of our sin. And the fourth category that we think about in these various trials is temptations. 
And we read just right below here in verses 12 through 15 that God is not tempting us, but that we are being lured by our own desire and that that is going to give birth to sin and that will bring forth death. And so how can we take joy in being tempted? Well, we can take joy because this is an opportunity for us to say no to our evil desires and to trust God and demonstrate our faith, which we're going to talk a lot about in this book. These are opportunities for us to resist temptation, have victory over temptation, and that is where we can find joy in that particular trial. The book of 1 Peter is also addressed to people who are under great persecution. And it has some very similar language that's helpful in our thinking through this, the, the penguin being joyful in speech and trial. 1 Peter 1 Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by, here it is again, various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though now you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is reminding us that when we are facing these various trials, though this for a little while and we've been grieved and this is necessary, well, this this tests our faith. This proves the genuineness of our faith. And for us to count it joy and to look past this various small trial, we look to our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father We looked at his mercy and the fact that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. And we have an inheritance that is imperishable and defiled and unfading. This is how we count it joy when we face these various trials. And we allow our faith to be tested and proven. Now there's another bird that's flying around in this aviary. And that is the sparrow. And I've picked the sparrow because of the metaphor that Jesus uses of, of the sparrow, that God watches the sparrow, knows when it falls, and that he provides for its needs. The sparrow is completely reliant on God for its needs. And so we were reminded that we should have humble requests to God. We need to be humbly asking God for what we need. And so the sparrow helps us to think about this. We get this from verses 5 and 8 in chapter 1 of James and 16 through 18. Uh, 5 says, if any, of you ask, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So we are supposed to humbly ask God for what we need. And he is a good father who enjoys giving us good things. So what we need to ask are what are those good things? What are those things that we should be asking for then? Is it just anything? Well, James also, not only does he pull a lot from the Old Testament, but it's interesting that he focuses often on the things that Jesus said during the Sermon on the Mount and much of what Jesus says. And so if we go back to Matthew 7, 7 through 11, we find something I, I feel like James is probably thinking about that Jesus said when he wrote this portion of his book. Matthew 7, starting in verse 7, says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. The one who knocks, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So God wants to give us good things. But again, we still not, are not quite sure what are those things we're supposed to be knocking and asking for and seeking after. Well, Jesus provides some clarification on this in John 14, verses 12 through 14. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. And that's a little crazy, right? Because Jesus did some really impressive things. He raises Lazarus from the dead. He heals the sick, the blind. He feeds 5,000. He walks on water. There's all these amazing things that Jesus does. And he's saying, you know, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do, will get to do these things, but even greater works that, than that we will do. He says, because I'm going to the Father. So he's leaving. So he's left us here to do something. And so in order to help us to do those things, we should ask God for the assistance, the ability to accomplish the work that he's given us. Because we know that we can't do those things of our own strength. And so that's why he's asking us to ask for those good things from the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, so in my name, meaning that we are of the same mind, we are abiding in Jesus, this is something that we know he would want for us, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So it's not just that our satisfaction is, is met or that we are glorified. That's not the point here. It's that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So those are the things we should be asking for humbly, is so that we can do the work that he has given us to do. Now our next bird is the wren. And that reminds us that we should have speech about salvation. We should be talking about our salvation. And we've picked the wren because the wren is a very small bird, but it's a really loud, almost annoying sometimes, very loud bird. And so because the wren is so loud and so small, you look at it and you think, this sound can't possibly be coming from this little tiny body. And in the same way, when we talk about our salvation... We should, uh, we should have that same effect in people. They say, well, whatever they're talking about can't possibly come from them. And they're right, because it's coming from God through Christ and through the Holy Spirit. 
And so we should be like the wren, boasting about our salvation. This we find in verses 9 through 11. James says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Well, that seems odd because we're not supposed to boast in ourselves. So what's he getting at here? Well, the next verse might help us some. And the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what's happening here? Well, there's an equalizing going on here. That's what the gospel does, is it it equalizes us. It takes the lowly and the poor, and and it boosts them up. It makes them joint heirs with Christ. It raises them to that level, and it takes the rich people, and the rich man looks around, and he realizes that all of these things he's amassed are worth nothing, are, are just going to fade away, and he's going to fade away like the grass and the scorching heat. And so he is humiliated. He's brought low. And so it doesn't matter what we have here on earth. We boast in the gospel We boast in, if we are lowly, we boast in our exaltation through Christ. And if we are of stature, we boast in our humiliation through Christ. And this is echoed beautifully in Galatians 6, 14 through 16. Paul says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the God or upon the Israel of God. So what is what is the one thing that Paul says he can boast in? Is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because everything else is dead to him. And so we need to be like the wren. We need to be boasting in our salvation, making much of it. Our next bird, and these first four birds are the birds that we want to be, and the last one's going to be one we don't want to be. But this next bird is the nightingale. And it reminds us that we should have wholesome speech evidencing salvation. And this is because the nightingale is said to have one of the most beautiful voices in the, the world of birds, and it's often ranked the very most beautiful-sounding bird. And so that reminds us that our speech should be beautiful, should be pure, and that reveals our heart. So if we have a saved heart, a sanctified heart, we should have saved and sanctified speech, speech that is pure and wholesome and lovely. We see this in verses 19 through 21 and 26 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, that every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. If anyone thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue, deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we see here 
that we are supposed to have wholesome speech, not angry speech, not quick speech, um, and not wicked speech or filthy speech. We're supposed to put away filthiness and rampant wickedness. We're supposed to have pure speech that is undefiled. That's what our religion is supposed to be. And so the religious person ought to be someone who is bridling their tongue. And this is echoed in Ephesians 4, 25 um, through 5, 5. And so we've uh, started our morning by reading the context of this passage, that we are new creations. And so this is the result of being a new creation. It says, therefore, having put away falsehoods, we don't lie, we don't uh, misrepresent the truth in our speech. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So what should we be saying? What should our wholesome speech look like? Well, it should look like this, that it builds people up, that it's appropriate for the occasion, that it's full of grace to those who receive it. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as Christ and God, as God and Christ forgive you. So our speech shouldn't be bitter or wrathful or angry or clamorous or slanderous or malicious. It should be tender-hearted and forgiving. It should be kind. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So, so we shouldn't have filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. This is out of place. This is not appropriate for our lives. So what should there be instead? It should be instead a spirit of thanksgiving. We should be thankful to God. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So if we look at our lives and we say that we are sexually immoral, sexually immoral and impure and covetous, and if we look at that other list, that we are uh, bitter and angry and slanderous and malicious, and this is evidence that there's something not right in our heart, possibly that we aren't an inheritance, we aren't an inheritor of the kingdom of Christ and of God, that we are not actually Saved, And this is what James is going to get at in the next chapter, that if we actually have genuine faith, it will evidence itself in our actions and in our speech. And we're reminded in Luke 6, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a, a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from the bramble bush. 
The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. We know that if we have good in our heart, it's only because the Spirit is there, because Christ is there, moving in us, working in us, producing that good. So if we have a good produce, it's because we have a good heart, because God is at work in it. But what else does he say? And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So when we examine our words, maybe we take a tape recorder and listen to what we are saying, we can see that that is coming out of the abundance of our heart. And now, our final bird is the mockingbird. Oh, yeah, the mockingbird. And he reminds us that sometimes people say one thing and they do another thing. So there's a dichotomy. There's a great contrast of speech and action, what someone is saying and what someone is doing. And so as we look at their lives, we see these two things aren't lining up. This comes from the verses 22 through 25, which says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For, anyone, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it is, it's easy to come Sunday morning to listen to a pastor or myself say some things from the Bible and say, oh, yes, yes, I agree with that. Uh, I agree, I agree. And then you leave here and you do the complete opposite. And you go on sinning. James is saying that, that you don't want to be that person. Don't be a hearer of the word and not a doer. We hear the word, we listen to the word, and we allow it to change our hearts. And we allow it to sanctify us. If we keep reading in that passage in Ephesians we were in, verse 6 of chapter 5 says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible by the light, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we need to be making sure that we are not being led astray by people with empty words, by people who say something and then don't follow through and do something. Those, Those people are people of darkness, not of light. And we need to think about what is pleasing to the Lord and discern that and listen to the word be in the word and and make changes in our lives because of what it says. And if we see someone, here it says, if we see someone who's saying one thing, saying that they have faith, saying that they believe, and doing something very opposite, we should expose them. 
We should talk to them and say, listen, you, these things aren't lining up. You're saying this, you're saying you believe this, and yet you're doing these things. What's going on? So we don't want to be like the mockingbird. We want to be like the other birds. We want to be like the penguin. We want to have joy in trial. We want to be like the sparrow. We want to humbly ask God for the ability to do his work. We want to be like the wren, be loud and boasting about salvation. We want to be like the nightingale, having pure, wholesome speech that evidences our hearts, our salvation. We don't want to be like the mockingbird. And sadly, the next chapter, chapter 2, is just full of the mockingbird. And he keeps flying around, and he's in here a lot. And some of these birds are in here more than others. They're more populous in this aviary. So what I'm going to do right now is dive into chapter 2. We're going to see two instances of the mockingbird here. And then next week we'll go into chapters 3, 4, and 5 and see where the other birds are flying around. So James has set up these five categories of speech for us. So we're just going to walk through and observe them. So starting in chapter 2, we see that we aren't supposed to show partiality. It says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing, and you say, oh, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit down at my feet. Have you not made then distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture... You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that last verse there reminds me an awful lot of the parable Jesus tells of the debtor who comes before his, um, the, the person who's loaned him this money. And it's a great amount. Uh, I think it's about 20 years wages that he owes. And the person he owes the money to is about ready to sell him and his family and everybody into uh, slavery so that he can have his, his money back. And this man falls down and begs and begs that he would be forgiven this debt. And the man he owes the money to forgives him and tells him to go out. And so he goes out and he meets another man who owes him a little bit of money and just a little bit of money. He nearly strangles the man, and some other people watch this and come back and report to the man that this guy had owed so much money to. And he brings him back in and calls him to account and says, pay up. 
And he says, if you can't even show this little bit of forgiveness to this man, I, I can't show you forgiveness. We don't want to be like that man. We don't want to be partial with our forgiveness. And so we see here that there is sometimes, at the end of the day, what we say does reveal our heart. And so when we're saying to people, oh, you sit here, oh, you sit here, it's revealing how we believe about them, what we, what we think about them. And if we really do want to say and speak with conviction, you shall love your neighbor as yourself and do well, then we can't show partiality in our actions. We have to say it and do it. We have to say that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and then we have to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now he moves into another instance of this mockingbird, which is that if you have, if you claim to have faith, we should demonstrate it. He says in verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, and that's a really important word there. Remember, we're talking about our speech. This is someone who is claiming to have faith. It doesn't necessarily mean that he has genuine faith, but he's claiming that he does. So he says he has faith, but he does not have works. Can that faith save him? Well, we're going to see the answer is no. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And what he's getting at here is that, that faith, apart from works, isn't real faith. It's not genuine, true faith. So when someone comes to us and has a need, and we tell them to go and be filled and be warmed, and we don't provide them clothing or food, that's dead faith. That's empty words. There's the mockingbird. Don't be the mockingbird. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. All right, so some people are saying that they believe things, right? But he's saying that's not enough to just believe in facts because you say that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, Abraham demonstrated his faith. He proved that his faith was genuine, was true, was real by obeying God and doing what he had said, namely offer up Isaac. Now this next verse ought to put up some red flags for you and ring some bells and you should be very interested and cautious and perhaps confused as I was when I first read it because we spent a good portion of our October last year talking about the Reformation. It was the 500th anniversary and we were excited about the solace and one of them is that we are saved, we believe, by faith alone. So when James says in verse 24 of chapter 2, you, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, we, we ought to take a moment and pause and consider what is he getting at because 
That certainly sounds like it's in contradiction to what Paul says in Romans. So we need to really take a moment to think about how are these two things, because I believe that the Bible is inerrant, and does not contradict itself, so how are those two statements that we are saved by faith alone and that we are saved by works and not by faith alone, how are those put together? What, what James is, is getting at is that just saying you have faith, just general idea of faith, that can't save you. What saves us is a very particular kind of faith, and I think Paul would definitely agree with this. What saves us is the particular kind of faith that produces works because the faith that produces works is a genuine faith. So it's not that we can work our way to salvation. We cannot earn God's favor. We're not capable of that. No one's good enough for that. But if we have genuine faith, if God allows us, if God gives us genuine faith, we will produce works And the faith that produces works is genuine faith, and by that faith alone, we can be saved. He goes on and he says, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So if you have a faith that doesn't produce works... It's not a real faith. It's not genuine faith. It's dead. And so, as we conclude this morning at this chapter, I know it kind of feels like a cliffhanger. It kind of feels open-ended. And there's three whole more chapters, and I'd be super happy to go another hour, but I'm sure many of you are hungry. So we're going to come back to this next week, and please do come back next week to see how he talks about the rest of these birds. But remember that we don't want to be the mockingbird. We don't want to hear something this morning and walk away and do nothing about it. We want God to soften our hearts and convict us. And so as we look into this mirror of James 1 and 2, and if you see something that you say, ah, you know what, sometimes I am very bitter with my words. Sometimes I'm very angry with my words or clamorous or malicious. Sometimes I slander people. Don't walk away and let that be the norm. But ask God that he would, as, as, as the humble sparrow, ask that instead he would give us the heart of the wren, that we would boast in salvation. Ask God to humble us, to exalt us. Ask that he would change the things that we say. Let's pray.